All right, so if you were here last week, you probably remembered that I mentioned that I was going to be preaching on pride this week, and so if you came back, congratulations, you're more humble uh, than those who didn't come back. Um, uh, I've been looking forward to and dreading this sermon in particular for a little bit. Uh, I knew it was going to kind of break down this way, and uh, I was was wondering uh, even before this week, like, okay, what? What's a good sermon illustration? Like, what's a good opening illustration that can help illustrate how difficult it is to teach on pride and how to, to preach on pride? And, and the Lord is gracious because He gave me a, a, an amazing illustration. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I can't even say it. Um, Monday this week, when I was having my regular kind of one-on-one with, with Beth, our, our table kids coordinator, uh, I was... Uh, doing this over Zoom, and I was outside. It's beautiful outside, enjoying the outdoors. Uh, it was late afternoon. I was enjoying a cigar, and uh, uh, toward the end of that cigar, I had to relight it, and I got a little bit ambitious in relighting it, and I noticed that there was a smell of burning hair while uh, on Zoom talking to Beth, and um, well, I uh, got a little bit ambitious at the cost of part of my left eyebrow. Um, and uh, I proceeded to stop the meeting and ask Beth, like, hey, we're on Zoom, there's video, I don't have a mirror, can you tell me, like, is this noticeable? And I'm, like, so self-conscious, I'm just like, can you, can you see it? And thankfully, uh, between the combination of having six days for it to grow back and also it only being partially singed and not burnt all the way down because I was only moderately ambitious, not as ambitious as I normally am, and um, it's, it's not that noticeable. And so I was like, oh, well, well it's, you know, this is kind of self-deprecating. So like, that's not proud, right? I could use this as a sermon illustration, but is, is my using, especially if it's not that noticeable and I have no need to, am I, is that an attention-seeking pride that says, hey, look at me, I'm not proud, I'm different? Or is it actually self-deprecating humility that actually helps you know, me not take myself too seriously in the moment Telling you how hard and how many hours I wrestled with that, between those two questions, does that, what does that say uh, about me? And, and even more importantly than that, does using this as a sermon illustration to open up uh, our conversation on pride this morning, instead of another extended Tolkien illustration, <laughs> demonstrate humility because I heard you all groan last week, or people-pleasing because I care too much about what you think about me? I don't actually have any answers to those questions. Uh, I just wanted you to know that I was wrestling with them as a case study of everything that we're talking about today. And Haman is a case study of pride, not just in the book of Esther. Resoundingly across many different perspectives, he is widely considered the single most clear, comprehensive, and compromised example of pride in Scripture. And specifically, he tells us three things we're going to talk talk about today, uh, or he shows us three things, what pride is, why it's deadly, and what its antidote is. What is the antidote of pride? So let's talk about, like, what is pride uh, to begin with? And and by the way, I'm I'm frequently, implicitly, explicitly uh, quoting Tim Keller in my sermons uh, and C.S. Lewis. I'm a big fan. Uh, both of them, and I left, I'm leaving out some of the, uh, the references this morning because of how uh, it's even more than usual um, rooted in their work, uh, especially on this passage. C.S. Lewis uh, defines pride as this, as ruthless, constant, and unsmiling concentration on the self. 
Ruthless, constant, unsmiling concentration on the self. When Haman walks into the chambers of the king, and, and the king asks him, what shall I do for the, the man whom the king delights to honor? Then his first reaction, right, is, oh, this is about me. <laughs> right? I mean, who else could it be? It can't be anybody else. And when it says, he said to himself, there's, a, there's like a, it's like a Hebrew idiom in the original language that's like, he's saying this to his heart of hearts. This is like a deep, like identity located part of him, himself that he's like, I know this is about me. His horse blinders are on in full. It's all about him and all about him having and getting more than others. Um, before this part in the passage that, uh, that Maria read this morning, uh, in chapter 5, I'm going to read a few more verses here because this happens right beforehand. After the first banquet that Esther uh, prepares for him and the king, which is what we talked about last week. It says, And Haman went out the day, that day after that first banquet, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. I think his wife knows that already. All the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king, probably many of which were in the room invited to hear him talk about that all the time. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate." Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Pride makes us profoundly insecure, right? Haman has all of this. He is the grand vizier. He is literally, like, he's the equivalent of the prime minister to the monarch of the world's largest empire in the world. The only way he could have more power and prestige would be to have happened to have been born to the previous king. Like, there is, he literally cannot get any higher. And one Jew at the gate, refusing to stand and bow to him, sends him into a tizzy. Pride is insecure, even though it tries so hard not to be. Pride can't laugh at itself. It, it, it can't forgive or is very slow to forgive because you're not just wounding someone's feelings, you're wounding their very self. Pride, you, you, if, you, if you are proud like, hey, but you, you do a good thing because it makes you feel good to do it or because you get the recognition from doing it, not because it's good or worthwhile in itself. To put this in the inverse, right, humility by contrast says um, it's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's to be as excited for another's success as if that success were yours. It is to grieve another's loss as if it is your own. There is no protection of ego or self. Tim Keller says that there's two primary flavors of this, right? There's the superior pride and an inferior pride. Superior pride 
is defensive when you're criticized. In fact, superior pride is defensive when you're not criticized. You will be defensive even if what's being said to you is not critical of you. It's just a statement or an observation, or maybe it's not even related, but you will be hearing it through that lens. Superior pride is obsessed with getting what you deserve or not getting what you don't deserve, right? You know more or love better. You serve more or lead better. You pray more or live more holier or justly than others and are thus entitled to insert blank, insert thing here. You're entitled to have Mordecai stand up and bow. You're entitled to that promotion that somebody else got because they are more qualified even though you're waiting for it longer. Right? You're entitled to what kind of appreciation in your marriage, to obedience from your kids, to like name it. Inferior pride, I like to call it Eeyore pride, right? When criticized, you will be crushed. And I know it sounds like, it sounds really crazy, like how is that pride? But it's because you're always carrying the weight of sin because you think your sin is actually so much worse than others that Jesus couldn't have died for that. You actually think that your sin is somehow worse, that, that that's pride, actually. You don't want Jesus, to let go and let Jesus take care of it for you. You can't rest because you suck too much at life to let your guard down. You can't rejoice because you implicitly believe that Jesus had to forgive you out of duty, but he wasn't glad to forgive you out of delight. I, uh, I, I very much err toward the, the latter of these um, in ways that I, I feel like... <laughs> Having, uh, I'm able to see more and more as time goes on um, how, how much that is the case. Uh, a couple of years ago, somebody who uh, tried, I'm so, still sad that he and his family moved away, his name's Andrew. Um, at one point, a couple of years ago, he said, he told me, he said, Brad, I'm, I'm really praying that you learn to care less. I was like, well, that's a weird piece of feedback. I mean, like what... Like, what pastor's problem is that they care too much about something? That's just silly. Like, I, I can't care less. What would that say about me? Uh, oh. Oh. What would that say about me? It's about me. So, I'm a, I'm a child of a messy divorce, and, and, and part of the, the consequences of that is I learned to do something called over-functioning which means that as an adult or as a pastor, I see my job, again, not as just as a pastor, but just like in, in my relational roles in life, I, I just, I think it's my job implicitly to take responsibility for the emotions and behaviors of others, right? And so if somebody's unhappy, that's somehow my fault. I mean, it might be my, ha- it be, might be my fault, but it's, it's a, I assume it is. If somebody's unsatisfied, I assume that that's my fault. If they're satisfied, I feel good because I feel like that's my fault too. See, the difference between making others feel loved and loving other people well sounds very, very slight, but downstream it has massive implications. And so, for me, when, I was over-func- when my overfunctioning was successful, like pre-pandemic, um, oh, man, I feel good. Like, I'm killing this, right? Man, we're growing. Like, the church is doing great. Awesome. Then the pandemic literally prevents me from making people feel good about anything ever again. 
Not that I'm sore about it at all. Didn't matter how well everything else is going, it still backfilled into my dignity, value, and worth. And I was crushed. I feel inferior as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, etc. So, how is this pride, right? Like, you, maybe you're like, no, that's pretty clear. I got it, Brad. Self absorption distorts and it leads to neglect at minimum, if not outright hurt. But more than that, it's pride because making burdens light and yokes easy is way above my pay grade. And trying to do what only Jesus can do is the definition of pride. Trying to have more control over your life or over what people think about you is the definition of pride. Right? Why is this bad? Why is pride so deadly? Well, we see... Once again, Haman gives us a painful illustration of exactly that. And for the second time, Haman switches places with Mordecai. The first time is when, uh, in the passage that Maria read, uh, he, instead of him being honored, Mordecai is, but now instead of Mordecai being killed, Haman will be. Chapter 7, verse 7 through 10. And the king arose, this is after the second banquet, Okay. So this is after the part that Maria read. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You think? And the king returned, actually, side note on this, this is fascinating. This is the first time in the book of Esther that the king does not make an impulsive decision on the spot and just take the guidance of a counselor or an advisor, right? He's actually like, understanding maybe a little bit the gravity of the situation here. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. In other words, they like bagged him, put a hood over him, blindfolded him. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. What a coincidence. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. What we see in here is there's like three ways that pride is deadly. The first is it is self-justifying. It makes you a fool. It blinds you to an objective reality because you can only think through and see through the, 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 the horse blinders of your, of your ego, right? It doesn't explain this. It would have been known and understood by the original audience of Esther that, uh, that in the Persian Empire, it was, it was known that if you wanted to speak to any of the king's concubines in his harem, never mind the queen, just the harem, if you want to speak to any of them, you were not allowed to speak to them at a distance of less than seven paces. So to be on the same lounge furniture with the queen is inviting a death sentence. It doesn't matter what your reasons are, what your justifications are, you're done. And you miss that. You become a fool because of pride. Superior uh, pride will attack because it can't learn from criticism. Inferior pride will withdraw because it's crushed by it. Neither of them receive criticism as potential wisdom to learn from. 
It's unable to. It's incompatible with it. Similarly, superior pride overestimates its own gifts. Inferior pride underestimates, uh, underestimates gifts, but neither appreciates that what they've been given are gifts of grace. They think it's their doing or their undoing. In uh, chapter 6, verse 11, that we read at the beginning, it says, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And that is what sent Haman into a, 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 a spiral. I mean, he gets, no, right, nobody likes a hater, but we all love being haters together, don't we? And if you're like frustrated and you're, you're, you're like, you need, to rant, you need to go rant to somebody, so you get all your friends together or you get onto Twitter or Facebook and you complain about how you've been aggrieved because your pride has been provoked. And it's, it, but it's just, right? It's, you, you can justify it. There's so many reasons why this is a travesty. This is not the first time that Haman will have done this with his friends and his wife, right? It would have, like, imagine doing that intentionally and, like, getting people together. Imagine how dangerous it would be to not have to plan that or wait for people to RSVP, and you could just do it instantly with no consequences or relational FaceTime. The self-justifying blindness of pride is insidious, right? Uh, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, uh, I'm an Enneagram 3. If that does, means nothing to you, it doesn't matter. I'm just, it's just context. Um, every number of the nine numbers and personality pieces, like each one has a, kind of a vice that, they are, uh, that is unique and distinct to them. And the Enneagram, the 3, uh, which is me, the, their, that vice is vanity. Um, you care a lot about how you're perceived, right? And one of the things that threw me for a loop when I was first learning about the Enneagram and, and how, like, my number and how that works and is, is like, caring how people perceive. I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I see that capacity in my heart, but I hate that. Like, I go out of my way not to, like, try to get attention. Like, it makes me really uncomfortable, and I'm, like, so self-skeptical and self-suspicious. And then I read a book that, that said, well, there's a subtype of the three that your vanity is and not being vain. Crap. I actually really do care that people see me as humble. A whole lot. In ways that can sometimes be paralyzing when I am forced to make a decision or to do something that risks me being seen as not humble, those are the, those are the hardest decisions for me. And that's actually vanity, right? That's not a humble brag. That's sin. And it's compromising because it's self-justifying. Second thing, second way that pride is so deadly is it is self-corrupting. I mean, think about this. Like, it's not an accident that at the end, this, uh, this eunuch tells the king, hey, there just happens to be this gallows that that your right-hand man, your grand vizier, the one whom you have entrusted all of the authority and the decisions in your kingdom, that guy was getting ready to execute the one who reported the assassination attempt before it happened and saved your life. 
it compromises you and your ability to be responsible to the people, the positions, and the places that you are responsible for. Right? He was going to slaughter an entire people because of one person, Mordecai. It corrupted him. Let me, me kind of like make this a little bit more concrete. Let me put it this way. Um, were Nazis evil? You're like, oh, he's bringing out the N-word. That's a rhetorical question, okay? Duh. Do you think that they started off wanting to be history's villains? Do you think they just flipped a switch and were like, you know what? Let's unjustly murder an entire ethnicity and commit genocide worse than we've ever seen and at scale because of modernity. I don't think that's the case. Do you think, do you think they wanted to be the universal standard? Like literally, anytime we're like, okay, something really evil and wicked has happened, is it as bad as the Nazis yet? No, probably not, right? Like the, the, it's the standard by which we compare evil and wickedness in the world historically now. They didn't start there, guys. It was pride. It was inferior pride in a lot of ways. It was, it was, if you know your history, you know that after World War I, Germany was, was, was beggared by the, the economic policies that sought to punish the German-Austrian Empire, and in a lot of ways, they turned in on themselves. And that became a cultural thing. And then it became a, a fascist thing. Like that's pride at scale. And it starts with understanding or not understanding that, pr that pride is a contagious injustice. Pride is contagious injustice. But the first symptom of that contagion is saying, I would never do that. Or I could never do that. As soon as you exclude yourself, this is Miroslav Volf from his, his book, fantastic book, Exclusion and Embrace. As soon as I exclude myself from the community of sinners, I exclude humans from the community of image bearers. He knows the thing a bit too about that. He survived the, the, the genocide in the Balkans, right? This is not a coincidence. Lastly, number three, that pride is self-destructive. Um, remember, if you remember last week, we talked about how uh, that Esther could not go into the king's presence without risking execution because if she went into the king's presence and he did not extend his golden scepter, basically granting an audience she would have been executed on the spot. Mordecai, not Mordecai, Haman shows up in the middle of the night when the king is normally sleeping, but just happens to be restless and not being able to sleep. And Haman has no idea. Like he's like, it's like, like Romeo and Juliet style, like throwing like pebbles up to his window. Like, like you're taking your life in your own hands, man. He has no idea. Right? His wife and friends the night before, that was actually that night, said, in the morning go to the king. He's like, nah, this is so important. I'm going to wake him up. It's self-destructive. Tim Keller says pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, silently and slowly killing you without you knowing. Right? Here's another example. Raise your hand if you can't stand snobs. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to trick anybody here, am I? Right? Snobs are the worst, aren't they? People who, who look down on other people, especially people who look down on people who look down on other people. 
I tried. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand for this, you won't anyway, but you don't have to. I'm not going to put you on the spot here. How many of you are thinking about people who really need to hear this sermon right now? Right? If you're like humble, you're like trying not to, but it's, you have so many reasons, right? And you've got at least as many white, man, I, this, this definitely doesn't apply to me. Um, I've got so many justifications. Oh, wait, self-justifying. Never mind. Um, if you can see them. <laughs> but this is why that's self-destructive. Does ignoring cancer make it go away or make it spread faster? It makes it spread faster. The bottom line, kind of putting all three, these three things together, um, there's a first century historian named Josephus. He said this about, about the Haman in the book of Esther and, and God's role in it, despite him being not mentioned here. He says, and from hence, from this piece, this, this passage, I cannot forbear to admire God. I can't help but admire God and to learn his wisdom and justice, not only in punishing the wickedness of Haman, but in so disposing it that he should undergo the very same punishment which he had contrived for another. As also, because thereby he teaches others this lesson, that what mischief anyone prepares against another he, without knowing it, first contrives it against himself. That's terrifying. Or at least, if you're aware of your pride, it's terrifying. Pride hungers for a stage, but it builds its own gallows. It hungers for a stage, but it builds its own gallows. All right, here's... You guys know my pattern in preaching by now. It's two points of like heart tenderizing, and point three is the like, oh, thank God there's something good here. Um, so after this, we'll do the Q&A. But what is pride's antidote? You see, Haman came wanting the delight and the honor of the king. That's actually what's driving it. When he encountered the king's question, he didn't just extend his golden scepter and, and, and invite him in. He asked him this question. And part of the reason why he thought it was about him is because he wanted it to be. He wanted that delight and that honor. It was too good not to be true. And the reason why he asked for the robes and the horse and the, you know, the public display is because he's thinking to himself, if I can just, if people can just see my dignity, value, and worth, if they would just know it, then maybe then, maybe then this black hole in my heart could be filled. Wearing robes, and especially royal robes, is not just this kind of formal symbolic reward or like an empty honor. It actually implied a very personal affection and delight. It actually imparted to the wearer the equal, and equal status and honor of the one who had worn it previously. That was why it's, he said, like the royal robes, but specifically the ones that people have seen you wear in public. Right? Jonathan, the, the, the son of King Saul in 1 Samuel, with his friend David, when he put his royal robes around David, he was not just saying, you, we are friends and you are part of my family. He's actually saying, you will be king and not me. That's how significant of an act this is. And how much, so when, when, when Haman is longing for that, he wasn't wrong. 
he wasn't wrong to long for delight and honor. He wanted the right thing, but from the wrong king. Don't we want, if we're honest and we think about how much of our lives are motivated and driven by that same black hole in our hearts, to long for the delight and the honor of the most significant. Did you, did you know the, the, the word doxa in the New Testament? We translate it as glory, but a literal translation is weight. Doxa means weight. It means significance. We long for glory. That longing is good. Otherwise, in John 17, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus is contemplating the crucifixion uh, on the night that he was betrayed by Judas, he would not have said and prayed to the Father, Father, would you please give them, that's us, you and me, the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. Doxa, weight and significance. That was his motivation for the cross. And at birth, Jesus emptied himself of that glory in Philippians 2, which will be our benediction for today. Says When it says he emptied himself, it's, the word is kinodoxia, glory empty. He, gloried, he glory emptied himself. He emptied himself of his significance. And then on the cross, Jesus clothed us in that glory even as he was stripped naked. That he had to do that should humble those of us who struggle with superior pride. But that he was glad to that that was his, his love and delight in us should uplift those of us who struggle with inferior pride. If you, if especially, I mean, either way, this quote from Martin Luther, who you've probably, you've probably heard this quote before, it's, it's fantastic. This is like, we can apply this to pride. He says, so when the devil throws your sins or your pride in your face, when you become aware of it, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, for those of you who are superior, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Inferior. That's for you. So what about my eyebrow? I admit I'm my own punchline in a sermon illustration. And that I also actually love being the punchline in my own sermon illustration because it makes me look more humble to you guys. I admit that is my heart's inclination. So what? It doesn't matter. Because the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, thinks I'm pretty freaking awesome. Not because of me, but because of Him and His heart. He delights and longs to honor me. That's what happened on the cross. The God and creator of the universe honors us by being dishonored by us. If you need, if you need like steps, like super practical application, here you go. One, excavate your pride in community. It's deceptive. You can't see it on your own. You need somebody to hold, you, hold up a mirror for you. Ask somebody who will tell you the truth, not who's worried about how they're perceived. Okay? Number two, savor the delight and honor I'm talking about. 
taste it. See that it's good. Know that it is offered to you not because you earn it. He is aware of your pride far more than you ever will be, even with the utmost of honest friends holding up a mirror. And he still delights in you. Number three, turn toward those who your pride has harmed. So turn away from pride and turn toward those in community around you. Ask for the opportunity to repent and to apologize. And then four, repeat. Keep doing that, right? If you do all that, and, and as you're doing that, because you will be savoring the love, the delight, the honor, the glory of Jesus that is given to you on the cross, you're going to forget about yourself. It's just so much better to think about anyway. It's actually more satisfying than self-absorption. It's more beautiful than anything you can present yourself as. It is more glorious and significant than any impact you can make anywhere else. It's just better. In fact, it's the best. So let's see what questions we have this morning. Just one so far. Looks like the gallows were 75 feet tall. That seems excessive. You know, there's jokes about, there's a joke about how the, you know, in the French Revolution, they're beheading people and the, the engineer goes through and happens to be looking up like the priest that follows and it's like, oh, there's the problem, it's not coming down and fixes the, get anyway. I, was, I just delivered a joke terribly. Uh, sorry. I ruined it. At some point, ask me afterwards, I'll tell it the right way and it'll make sense, but you still won't laugh. Um, yes, the gallows were excessive, 75 feet tall. Also, um, in case anybody has another text, please send them in because it's the only one I have so far. But um, also, it's helpful to know that there's no Hebrew word for gallows. The, the word that we translate as gallows um, is, is basically like they were strung up, like they're hung. You know? But uh, death by hanging as an execution did not exist in Persia in this time. What did exist... Uh, was that they would impale people on massive seven-foot, eight-foot-long spikes from where the good Lord split you all the way up through your mouth, okay? And then you would be hung like that. So when, when it's, it's saying, that, you know, 75 feet high, it's not like I got to crane my neck so that the noose, so I can see the noose. It's, the, the, the point is, to, make, to be made is that the entire city could see it and to see the body hanging there. It was an instrument of shame, which is the opposite of honor, is the opposite of glory and significance. It is, a, it is terrible and, and a curse, right? One more question. And I'm going to come back to that. Could you please cover the three steps or antidotes to pride again? The rinse, repeat steps. Yes. Excavate your pride in communities, number one. Number two, savor the better delight and honor of God. Three is, is repent to anyone your pride has affected. And then keep doing that. And number two is critical, right? Because apart from the delight and the honor of God, you're just bootstrapping your way through it. 
The reason why that translation for gallows is important is because, and, and you guys have heard me say this before, um, re- referring to other biblical characters, and I'm also really surprised to hear myself he- say this about Haman, but he says, or, but I'm going to say, that Haman, or that Jesus is the true and better Haman. We've talked about how Jesus is the true and better David, who is pretty good, but still not Jesus. Think about it this way. We, we, we covered all of this ground today. Haman had been traded out and switched with Mordecai twice. Once, so that he would be robed in glory and honor and paraded through the streets. And the second time, so that he would be killed and executed instead. So that it would be him who is shamed and displayed. Jesus does the same thing. Except it's not his pride that put him there. It's his humility. It's his, his glory emptying. It's his love for us. Haman did it kicking and screaming. Despite his best efforts, Jesus did it intentionally, willingly, and lovingly, and gladly. And he was impaled and crucified and pierced for our transgressions in order to robe us in righteousness. This is, you know, the fancy uh, theological word for this is double imputation. It means he gets our sin and we get his righteousness. We're robed in it. That's what we remember and we are nourished by that truth when we do communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he says, this is my body. It is broken for you. It will be seen, not in the city square, but on a desolate hill for all to see and mock and jeer at. I take your shame and I give you honor. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. This is sealing of everything that is about to happen. There is no undoing this. There is no taking it back. As much as I love you on the cross and that, that drove me to that point, I love you still. And you can know that because I am sealing it in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you are proclaiming and remembering and you are, you are counting on that promise. And I will nourish you in the midst of it. As much as the bread and wine or juice we have, it's gluten-free bread, by the way, it doesn't matter. Jesus will use it to nourish you because it's not those things that nourish us. It is his presence that he promises among his people every time and any time we do this. We do uh, communion family style, and what that means is, uh, is whenever you're ready, while Danny's praying or, or playing, uh, you can come down uh, to either here, this station, or that station over there, and um, as soon as there's 10 or 12 of us, we'll take it together family style. We're going to look each other in the eyes because we have no shame. Uh, because we can do so because Jesus cleared that. And we delight in one another because he delights in us. And yeah, including if you have pride. Welcome. Let's pray. Jesus, you are an incredible author. <laughs> to have worked in and through a story that doesn't even mention your name, the outline, an explicit absence is still leaving a hole that is cruciform in its shape. 
There is no solution to our pride apart from your laying yourself down in humility. And Lord, because of that, we can come to you. We can know that we're loved even before and despite our difficulty resolving our own pride because we can't. We need you. So Lord, nourish us toward that end. (sighs) Give us an assurance that we don't have to strive anymore because you've done it all for us and it is finished. We pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.